just want to make sure you're following me. What I'm going to be doing with the slides today is I'm going to do a little bit of review and give a lot of information I shouldn't say a lot. A bunch of information, not in your books, but you can add to your books. But I want you to catch something that I probably didn't do with my class. That little number down in the bottom, okay, number 19, because a couple of you had said, hey, I'm not sure where you're at when you're going through your slides, and, and sometimes I don't know where I'm at when I'm going through my slides. But um, if the bottom, uh, the bottom little green circle down there, that is to tell you about what page in the book. Okay, it won't coincide with the handouts because those are a different edition. But if you have one of the books, so sometimes today you're going to see nothing at the bottom quarter, uh, corner, and that's because it's not in the book, but you may want to mark some things on a piece of paper or whatever to add to your information. We've talked a little bit. He shared with us about giving out the good news. Let's get into our topic. We're going to John chapter 3. I need you to join me there in John chapter 3 to mark some verses in a moment. This, the study that we've been doing for this month, okay, and next month, Next time we meet, we're going we're to be in a new section, okay? But for this one, we've been going through section two in the book, and it is talking about eternal security. That idea of eternal security is you cannot lose your salvation. The idea is once you ask Christ to be your Savior and you genuinely repent, you are his child, and the Bible teaches that it is irrevocable. Now, we're going to talk about this because this is such a critical, critical, critical doctrine that is often challenged, but it is so important. I don't know if you remember reading about the account that when the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge was being built, that in the first few weeks, in the first few months of them working on it and building on it, 23 different men who were working on it fell off and fell to their death in the waters, the rocks below. So those who were in charge of building, they decided that what they were going to do was put safety nets that were going to be underneath where the men were working. In the months and the years that followed, from that moment on that the safety nets were there, all of a sudden the people, the number falling went way down. Uh, and in fact, there's only 10 people who fell after that versus the 23 who fell to their death prior to that point. And once the nets were up, work productivity increased by 25%. Why? What difference did that, did that make? Did it help with confidence? Okay, did it help with people? I mean, have you ever had this where um, you probably haven't done it, okay? But you get in a performance and you're standing on steps or you're in a wedding, and I usually, when, when wedding rehearsals talk about this, you're standing there and you're thinking to yourself, oh my, oh my, I hope I don't faint, I hope I don't faint. The more you think about it, right? And the steps start getting smaller. Okay, you're on a platform in a program and you're thinking, boy, these are narrow steps. And then as the more you think about the narrow steps, in your mind it feels like everything's getting tighter, smaller. So can it happen that people who lack confidence can be more prone to an accident? Okay, so in that, in that regard, the idea of knowing for sure, knowing for sure that, that we're on our way to heaven, that we have that, that can build some great confidence to do for the Lord and to be more secure and to be more solid, more steady in your life. So this doctrine is really important. We're asking it kind of this way for the class that I'm doing, is how can we be sure we don't lose our salvation? You've covered some of this, but here are some of the points we've covered already. Salvation is all by grace. It's not dependent upon us. 
us, it's a work of God. We said, number two, that when you get saved, that is, you call upon Christ, ask him to be your savior, to give you eternal life, you become part of God's family, and that's a relationship that's talked about. You become the sons of God. And with that, that means we enter into a permanent relationship with Jesus Christ as a parent-child that it might, it might have growing patterns and it might have some bumps in it just like you do with your kids. There might be some fellowship issues, but you're related. You're his child just like your kids are your kids no matter what. Then we said, number three, that if you call upon Christ, you get put into a, a setting, a position, a legal spiritual position called in Christ in scriptures. He's in you, you're in him, you're bound together, you're spiritually uh, united in a very unique situation, and according to scripture, that has legal, positional, it has some practical benefits. In fact, Romans talks about that idea, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And other passages talk about those who are in Christ, they become a new creature. Then well, let's go to number four, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I wanted to remind you, we used the illustrations. For those of you who are in the other class and just joining us today, we said that if you were in one of the city of refuge in the Old Testament, you were protected. So being in Christ, you're protected in that same way. And so we used another illustration that we talked about from the Old Testament, that when they were in marriage, the marriage ceremony for the Jews, the groom would dress up like the bride would. In the course of the ceremony, he would take off his outer robe and put it, according to Isaiah 65, put it on the bride's shoulders so that everybody in that wedding feast would look and see she's in him. She belongs to him. And so those illustrations back up this idea that once you call upon Christ to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sins, you become positionally, spiritually, before God, you are in Christ. That idea of he gives you his righteousness and takes your sin. We said this, number four, you are kept by the power of God. And so this whole idea is that you, you know, that discussion on persevere or being preserved, you're preserved by the power of God. It does not belong to you to keep yourself saved. God does that. And God even preserves some of those individuals who, like we said in our discussion, Lot, okay, where we had the Corinthians who are carnal. They're still kept by God. Peter, who denied Christ three times, and so did the other disciples that evening. They're kept by Christ because we read in First Peter, we are kept by the power of God. We read in John chapter 6, where Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. This is the will of him which sent me, that all of which he has given me, I should lose none of them. So Jesus has the responsibility. It is God's will that Jesus keeps us saved, and so it's not dependent upon us, and that's what Jude writes that idea, now to him that is able to keep us from falling. And we talked in John chapter 10, if you've never marked the verses, you want to go back and mark these in your Bible, that there's three promises made in these two t- verses. The promise where Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life, they shall never perish, neither shall I man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And he repeats it again. No man shall be able to pluck them out of my hand. And we said there's three promises here. Eternal life. There's the promise they shall never perish. We talk about the idea of ume, ume, ume. The eye in the original. It is just as strong as you can be saying it'll never, 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 never happen. And then there's the promise nobody can take you out of God's hands. 
That nobody includes Satan, that nobody includes you, that nobody includes a church. That once you call upon Christ in true repentance, ask him to be your savior, you're united in him, you become in Christ, he saves you, he forgives you your sins, then he says he, get, he is going to keep you saved. Let's go a little bit further, okay? The love of God was one of the topics that we talked about of the 12, and I'm giving you 12 proofs from scripture this morning. Some in the book, some not. Number five is you cannot fall out of love. You know how people say this to you sometimes? And I get people who come in, they say, I fell out of love with my spouse. I fell out of love. God never falls out of love with you, no matter what you do. He said in the book of Romans, who shall separate us from the love of God? He starts off the paragraph that way and ends the paragraph way, this way by saying, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. We can't Others can't turn God against us. And by the way, that's very important. It is very important that others can't turn God's love away from you because who is trying to do it on a regular basis? Satan, who's the accuser in heaven, trying to turn God against you and tell God uh, things about you and trying to turn. And he says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Um, you remember in history, some of you, this is pre before you were born, but remember when George Bush was president and he was in the Gulf War? He experienced unprecedented popularity rating by the American public. At the time of the Gulf War, he was at 80% approval, which is phenomenal for any president. But within a few months after that, after the war was over and the economy was kind of bouncing all over the place, all of a sudden the approval rating went way down. In fact, the majority of people at that time as we were entering into the new election year, the majority of people said we want a change in government. And at that time, two others entered into the presidential race. There was the Democratic candidate was Bill Clinton, and then there was the independent Ross Perot. They entered into the, into the uh, arena. Even though he was a candidate, we find out afterwards through personal records and things that at the beginning of that year of the election year, he was not convinced he was running for re-election. They were talking about it, and it was like, yeah, yeah, but he wasn't personally convinced. He even went up to his cabin with his, uh, uh, his most intimate contacts, and they tried to convince him because he was so hurt that the American public had so quickly turned against him. And so uh, he finally did agree to run in the springtime, but that was really late in the election cycle. And so when he started running, he really didn't throw his heart into it until later in the campaign, but by then it was lost. Just think. A man being affected by the polls to the point that it would affect in such a major decision. Aren't you glad that God doesn't run a poll and go and change his feelings about you? Okay? When you turn against him and don't say, God's the most popular thing in my life, God doesn't say, I'm discouraged by that. I'm gonna, I, I don't know if I'm going to be on your side anymore. Our Lord does not turn his love away from us no matter what we do. And that's an important truth. Number six is the reason I know that I'm on my way to heaven is because, not because of me, but because of all these things we listed so far and this. If you are a believer, God's very own Holy Spirit moved into you the day you got saved. Well, you know not that you have become the what of God? What's that, that, that uh, location, that building, that facility that he calls you? The temple of God, okay? That you are the temple, the dwelling place of God. And so he says that, but let's jump into Ephesians and remind ourselves what Ephesians 1 says about this Holy Spirit living within you. In whom you also trusted. After that, you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after you believed, okay, that moment you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit. And then what title does he give him? 
the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Think this through. Watch this verse. The Holy Spirit is two things in this verse. He is the earnest, the pledge. The word can be used for a down payment for property or for a wedding ring, an engagement ring that says, I am so committed, I'm going to follow through. I'm giving you something right now that shows I'm following through. Though, like I said, the engagement ring or a down payment. And so the Holy Spirit is God's down payment to you that you are going to get the inheritance that's been promised. You got that the moment that you believed this Holy Spirit of promise, this earnest, entered into your body, okay, of a commitment. He stays until the day of redemption, according to this verse. So from the moment that I got saved until what's the day of redemption? When we're taken to heaven. Okay, when I go to heaven, that's my day of redemption, whether it be the rapture or until that time, you know, that the Lord would take me home. Then the, the point is that from that moment that I believed to this moment, I have the spirit living within me. God says he's going to stay there. He is God's pledge and personal commitment that I'm going to get that inheritance in heaven. And he not only gives me that promise, but he seals me. Sealing in the Bible days indicates ownership. Sealing means I belong to him. Sealing means there's a protective nature that nothing else can get in. And so he makes this comment, and this ties together. It's a verse that's not in your book, but you may want to add it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we believe not, and he's talking to believers, if we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. What in the world is he talking about in this verse? In the passage, he's talking about the idea of we stop believing. That is, we stumble, we fall, we, we fail doing what we should do. Which, by the way, how many of us do this? All of us at some time, typically. Okay, if we're not faithful in some, at some moment or some time, or, or we give in to the flesh, he does not stop being faithful to us. If we're not faithful to him, he remains faithful to us. That's an important passage. But then it goes on and adds, why? How do we know he remains faithful? He cannot deny himself. He cannot reject himself. Who's living within you? Holy Spirit. So even if I stumble, I fall, and I'm not as faithful as I should be, the Spirit of God still stays within me, and I can't be condemned to hell. Why? Because if He condemns me to hell, He condemns Himself, His Spirit. And so it's an important aspect that God's Holy Spirit we have from the moment of our salvation until our entrance into heaven, it, for God to reject us in this lifetime is for Him to reject His own Spirit. It's an impossibility. Let me give you another thought here, okay? We've said already that how do we know that once we get saved, we're saved forever. We've given all these thoughts so far. We've talked about not falling out of the love, being in Christ, being kept by God. Number seven, when you got saved, and this goes, takes back to your book, God gave you his life. Okay, there's two aspects of this that are very important. Okay, and so mark in your notes, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from life. Two thoughts, very important thoughts about the life that God has given you. Let's ask this, what type of life, according to this verse, what type of life has God given you? Everlasting. Okay, keep that in mind. It's everlasting. Okay, he's given you everlasting, eternal, forever life. When are people given? When do they possess this life? In the future or at present? According to this verse. It's right now. You have everlasting life in this lifetime. People say to me, and I grew up this way. 
somebody was just asking me about where I grew up in the church I grew up in, what did they believe? Um, and we were talking about some of the things with the prayers and things like that. I was taught that nobody can know for sure. You can only know about eternal life after you die. Okay. According to this verse, he gives us eternal life when? The moment of salvation. And it's eternal life. So what's that mean? If it's eternal life, how long does it last? It should, if we're following biblical teachings, it should last. Oh, wait a minute. It's only going to last until next week when you sin. Then was that forever life? What's the answer, folk? No, no. Then it was temporary life. Watch a number of these verses that will give you the present tense. Some will give you the future tense. Some will give you present tense. And watch how they describe the life. And we're going to come back to it in a moment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but right now have everlasting life. Okay? He that believeth on the Son has right now everlasting life. He that believeth not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son, believes on him, may have everlasting life. Let's keep on going. I give right now unto them everlasting life. They shall never perish. And this is the record that God has given, past tense. God has given to us eternal life. He goes on, and this life is in his Son. He, Jesus, became the author of what type of salvation? Okay, this is really important, so follow along. Down to all that obey him. If eternal, if everlasting, the word that's, that's used frequently in almost every case is ionion, okay? If that word does not mean forever, but if that word can mean only a temporary period of time, like it seems like, okay, we use it all the time. It seems like school goes on. Okay, we say that as kids. We wish, we, you know, we say like, oh man, this show is so boring. This sermon is going on. Okay. And you've thought that, I've thought that, okay. Um, you know, I, I wish we could just be at Shady Maple. Okay, so we use forever in a very fluid sense, okay, that we use it. Does the Bible use it in a fluid sense that forever could mean just for a period of time? If it does, if forever only means a year, two years, ten years, if forever only means twenty years, and then God's going to take it away from you. He's given you forever life, you know, but he's going to pull it away from you. If that's what he's given, something that is actually forever in term, but temporary in nature, then God himself will not last. The same word is used of God in multiple passages, that our God is eternal. Okay? So if eternal only means a period of time, then God only lasts a short period of time. If that's true, then Jesus is not an eternal being as well. Jesus is said to be forever. And if Jesus is only forever as long as like going to school is forever, then, then what does it mean about salvation? Watch this. In Hebrews, it talks about he has given his sacrifice forever, once and done. Well, if forever only means a short period of time, then it means Jesus has to re-die, re-resurrect, and re-ascend. 
So when does forever mean forever? Forever. Okay. It, it means it is, when, eternal means eternal, eternally. Does that make sense? Okay. So when people say, well, wait a minute, you, you know, how can I know for sure I'm going to heaven? Because God gave you what type of life? Eternal, everlasting life. And when does he give it to us? In this lifetime. And how long does it last? Forever. Forever. He, he, it, it doesn't stop. Let's take another thought, okay? How can we be sure that, we're, that we cannot be lost? The, um, the illustrations Jesus uses to defy or define, define, not, not defy, to define salvation. Look at John chapter 3. Jesus uses earthly illustrations. The earthly illustrations that he uses indicates that salvation is not to be repeated time and time and time again. That you have to get saved this week and then next month and then next year. It's the indication by the illustrations used that, okay, it's a once and done thing. Go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. When he's talking to Nicodemus, it says the same verse 2 came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. You have come from God. And he goes on, he says, for no man can do the miracles that except for God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, look at verse 3, what earthly situation does Jesus use as an illustration of spiritual uh, change. Physical birth equal is related to spiritual birth. Okay? Because he says in verse 3, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused. How can man be born? And Nicodemus understands that there's something here. There's a parallel here. Because he says, how can he enter a, sec- uh, into a second time into his mother's womb? And he knows a fact. Isn't this a, a wonderful fact? The babies don't go back in and come out multiple times. Praise God, right? Okay. And all the ladies, moms go, amen. Okay. It's taking the illustration, he says, Verily, verily, I say, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be... okay." Taking that illustration of being born again, which is an illustration of the spiritual birth. The mother does the laboring. It's the baby gets the life. It's not something that the baby does, but it's the mother that does the, the sacrificing, the agony like Christ did on the cross, that he, he is the one that, that produces the birth. But the baby gets life. And so the same way God does the laboring, God does the birthing, you get the life. It's not dependent upon the works you do, but upon Jesus Christ, the work he has done. You must be born again. Just as physical birth is a one-time experience in everyone's life, so too spiritual birth is a one-time experience in everybody's life. Let's add to it. There is a moment in time that you are physically born. There is a moment in time when you are spiritually born. Okay, it's a moment in time. You remember, or maybe you don't fully remember, but there has to be a moment in time when you are birthed into God's family. It doesn't happen over, well, I just grew into this, or I just, I learned about this, and, he, and I just, I have always believed. No, you were not always birthing. There was a moment in time when you were birthed. 
Okay, same thing's true spiritually. A moment in time. A moment Jesus uses weddings or marriage as an illustration of your relationship. There's a moment in time where you are pronounced husband and wife. Yes, you planned it. Yes, you were prepared. Yes, you were you had fallen in love, but you weren't married until that moment in time when the officiant says, I now pronounce you. Okay, it's it's a one time Moment in time, spiritual birth, being united to Jesus Christ. It does not need to be repeated. You want to see another illustration in the same text? Jump down to verse in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, for God so loved the world, etc., etc. He's referring to a moment in Numbers 21 where the Jews were complaining and they were all in, in their dishe- disheveled and situation. God sent serpents amongst the camp. The people were being bitten by these poisonous serpents. To have them to be re, uh, healed of this calamity, Moses put up a brazen serpent uh, on a pole, which we use in symbol of medic- medicines, even this modern era. And what did the people have to do in order to be healed of that poisonous snake bite? Look to the pole, to the serpent. How often? Once. Once. It's a one-time thing. They had to look just once to the brazen serpent and they were healed. So too, how often do we need to call upon Christ to be born again, to be spiritually healed? Again, I remind you, a moment in the history, a one-time moment, and it's not to be repeated. Let's take the next one that he does. Go to John chapter 4. Jesus is preaching or walking along in his preaching tour. He comes to the woman at the well. The woman at the well, he has conversation. And he says to her, give me something to drink. And they have a conversation. And she says, basically, sir, you know, da-da-da-da-da, I'll give you something to drink. Look at verse 13. Jesus said, whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. What water is he referring to? The well water. Okay, is that true? That you and I go back to the, to the well, go back to the cup, go back to the plastic bottle, go back to the thermos you're carrying with you. Do we drink it frequently? Why? We get thirsty again. We need to be replenished. So Jesus says, Whosoever drinks repeatedly of this water shall, uh, shall uh, thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall what? Never thirst, but the water that I give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. And so he's making a contrast. Not a comparison, but a contrast with this illustration. The contrast here is drinking from a physical well or a fountain, whatever you want to call it, is something that you do over and over again. Verse 13, you keep on drinking, keep on drinking. But then he says there's a one time... In verse 14, 15, it happens only one time. Whosoever drinks from this well that I give, he doesn't need to go back and drink and drink and drink. Because once he drinks, what happens inside? There's the wellspring of, of satisfying you know, of the thirst that is in you. You don't need to replenish it anymore. So it's a one-time act, and you will never, ever thirst again. So in this illustration, it's contrast. But the, con- but the conclusion is the same. One time, 
one time going to Christ. There's another illustration that he gives. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is where Jesus does the miracle of the feeding of the thousands. If you turn over to John chapter 6, he relates this again to that spiritual uh, work that he does. And he's going to, in this, in this illustration, he's feeding the thousands. And he's going to get into conversation. That you eat the bread that is provided by God. What does he call himself in this text? I've just alluded to it. I am the bread of life. Okay. And so he's going to make himself as an illustration, a contrast to show this truth. In the Old Testament time, when they got the manna that came down from heaven, when they were in the wilderness, how often did the manna come down? Every day. Except... Okay, except for on the, on the Friday, they, got, they were able to collect double portions. So when were you supposed to go to the store of the manna? Every day, you go out and get it, and you only get enough for that day. That's it. Okay, and then it would turn to worms by the end of the day. And so you were trusting God to provi- provide for you day after day after day after day after day after day. And so God was teaching them about trust, trust, trust. But they had to go and they had to in, and eat the manna. And they ate the manna. And they ate the manna. And they ate the manna. And he's going to say, there is a new manna coming down from heaven via miracle. I am that new manna. And he's going to make a contrast that how often did you guys eat the new manna? talking to, the, to them about their ancestors. They ate every day. Why? He says in verse 27, because the food or the meat perished. And so you had to eat to replenish, to replenish. But then he makes the contrast, and he says, the bread that I am, if you take from me, if you take me into your life, if you become one with me, you don't have to eat over and over again. Watch how he makes comment. Verse 50, let's pick in verse 50. Okay, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Jump down to verse 53. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whosoever eats my flesh, the whole idea is ingesting, taking into your body, taking into your life, not physical cannibalism, but in a spiritual sense, you ask Christ to come into your life. Okay? And, uh, and he becomes the source of your, of your existence. Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life. Whosoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. I raise him up at the last day. My flesh is meat indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. There's that in Christ concept. As the living Father has sent me, I live by the Father so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, for not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, but he that eats this bread shall live forever. The whole concept is contrasting. You don't need to go and recollect and redo the manna and it has to be reperformed. I come once, I give my life once, and you need to come to me one time in your life, and I will give you a life, a spiritual life, that means you will never, ever, ever perish. And so he's contrasting, oops, let me go back. He's contrasting that whole concept of physically having to eat often, spiritually one time. So the illustrations. So let me give you another thought here. How do I know that when you get saved, I get saved, we pray to Christ, it's lasting. Jesus does not accuse us, but assists all believers who struggle in sin. Watch the text. 
Watch the passages. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to keep on making intercession for them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about believers. He's talking about believers in the book of Hebrews that some of the believers were starting to turn away and go back to Judaism. And he's saying Jesus Christ is in heaven. He's a better priest. He's a better intercessor. He's in heaven. He's pleading your cases. God is not going to reject you at any time. Even when you stumble and you fall, he cannot deny himself. Let's take this a little bit further. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. This is my goal. This is my plan, that you don't sin. But if any man sin, he's talking about you and me, the believers, that God doesn't want to sin. But chances are, okay, we have what? We have somebody pleading our case before the Father saying, do not turn your love against them. So but the work of Christ is keeping us saved by keeping us in God's good graces. It's Jesus Christ. He doesn't accuse us. He assists us in heaven when we struggle. We can take a little bit further. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he knows that this is a forever problem with us in this lifetime. So he keeps on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. In that same passage, he is picturing Jesus Christ as being in heaven when we're being accused that Jesus Christ is assisting us and not joining in in the accusations. He does not turn against us in heaven. That's a, that's a tremendous thought, that Christ is assisting us in heaven when we struggle. He is not accusing us. Let me give you another biblical truth. Carnal Christians are still called Christians. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against thee. He's called a brother, but he might offend you. We go elsewhere. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. If we who are born again confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. We still need cleansing from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And he's talking to people that he says, you still struggle with sin. And what does he call them at the end of the text? My little children. There's still a relationship. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, and I, brethren, could not speak as unto uh, you unto, as unto spiritual, but you were carnal. But they're still called brethren. They're still those who the Spirit of God is working in. So God doesn't take away the salvation. He may then, let's take it to the next thought. Okay, disobedient believers are chastened, they're not condemned. Biblical truth, disobedient believers, those who are truly born again. He says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he has received. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. And what son of, is he whom the father doesn't chasten? In other words, you're not his child. And so the fact is, you and I cannot comfortably live in sin or without having conviction or chastisement come into our life if we are true believers. Let me give you a next one, okay? Number 12. If salvation can be lost, if it can be taken away by your sinning against God, then we have no hope at all. We have no hope at all. The reason I say that is this. We still do sin after being saved. True or false? We, it is true. We still sin. We are forgiven of our sins, 
But it doesn't mean we're perfected from our sins. We're growing from them. We're trying to get away from them. But when are we going to ultimately become sinless? When we get to heaven. In fact, for in many things it says, we offend all, or that is all of us offend. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This is to believers. Okay, now take this thought and follow the logical progression of Scripture. If we still sin, okay, and he is going to deal with us for our sins, then he's got to condemn us to hell. Because the Bible says, whosoever shall keep the whole law yet let offend in one point, he is guilty of violating. How many sins does it take to become a sinner? Just one, okay? And so the idea is that if we do, and it, look in Romans chapter 1. Look at all these that he says, if anybody commits these, these are worthy of death. He includes in Romans chapter 1 the idea of disobeying parents. The idea of gossip. Do we as believers, can we still struggle with that, those sins? Yes, we can. So what happens here? If all of a sudden God says, I am going to save you, give you eternal life until you sin, then I'm going to take it away and give you what you deserve. Well, how long will your salvation last? Not long. Not long because believers still sin. And somebody says, well, they have to commit a big sin for God to lose out. What is a big sin? What, what sin, according to Scripture, what sin do we have to commit to end up going to hell? Let's talk about action sins. I just mentioned gossip, lying. But in our society, we think, oh, no, it has to be like murder or something really. No, Scripture says that if we get what we deserve... For any sin, we go where? We go to hell. We go to hell. All of us are guilty of violating God's word and, and disobeying. If we get what we deserved, we go to hell. That's, that takes us back to salvation is something given to us because we don't deserve it. He gives it to us by grace. And it's a free gift. And when he gives it to us, he doesn't take it back. He doesn't say, okay, I, I'm disappointed with you. We never fall out of his love. He gives us his Holy Spirit. We become in Christ. And we become a changed person. Now, we don't want to sin. Because when Christ comes into us and gives us new life, if any man be in Christ, he becomes a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Let's talk about it. Look at verse 15 of this text. This is, in order to get this verse, you've got to look at the previous verses. Okay, look at verse 15 of this very same passage. 2 Corinthians 5. What in, according to 2 Corinthians 5, what does God want of us? This is critical to understanding this verse. What is he requiring of the believer? This is the context for the verse that we often overlook. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth... What's his desire? Live unto themselves, but unto him which died and rose again. The point of this text is God wants us to live for who? Him, not ourselves. To do right. The question that has to come out of this verse then is how do I do that if we're still struggling and stumbling? 
And that's where he brings up this idea. How is it possible to overcome some of those sins and to keep on growing that you've been birthed as God's child now to grow spiritually? How is that possible? We become, by becoming in Christ, we become new creatures. He changes us. He transforms us. It's his work of helping us to overcome sins. But when we don't, he still forgives us. He doesn't lose his love for us. But he helps us to grow. And he's trying to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, that new creation, if we talk about... uh, Tony used an illustration last Sunday when he preached. Transformers. You take it, it might be, uh, you know, for those of you who know what he, he was talking about, they might show up like a car and then you change it and the same parts become something. Okay, let me give you a, a better illustration. Let's, let's use God's nature, okay, that you all know about. We call this a metamorphosis. We call this a transformation. We call this a change that God says you are a new creature. It's still you, but things have changed drastically when you get born again. God's spirit is now living within you. So if we say, okay, let's, let's, can it be possible there can be drastic change even with God's physical nature? Oh, yeah. The tadpoles, which we all know about and how they are designed. They have the gills. They have tails. They have fins uh, you know, to swim. They live in water only. They have a two-chamber heart. And they, you know, the, their eating is very limited okay, to just you know, some of the plant life. But when they become a frog, when they're transformed, all of a sudden they can breathe out of water which you couldn't do before. All of a sudden, they have arms and legs, which some of you eat, okay, uh, to help them swim. All of a sudden, they can be both in water, out of water. They're that transformed. All of a sudden, they have a three-chamber heart. All of a sudden, they eat bugs. They're carnivores. They're meat eaters. What, create, what caused that? In God's nature, in God's creation, he can transform creatures, can he transform people? Who people who you know, used to be very selfish and very angry people, can he change them into sweet, forgiving individuals? Yes. Yes. That life of Christ that's living within you, you're a new creation. Okay? And if somebody says, yeah, but I, you know, I, I, you know, what if I'm stumbling? You're growing. You're growing. It's not dependent upon you to keep yourself saved. It's God who keeps you saved. There's some, th- some thoughts here, okay? That, yes, some people have said, I'm following Christ, following Christ, and then they totally, totally turn away. And he says in Scripture, the chances are they may have never been born again in the first place. The idea that we use the phrase frequently, that they have made a profession without a real possession of Christ. They really didn't mean it. They're going with the crowd. And so the, the idea is that, is that God had saved individuals, and those he saved, they're going to be growing in Christ. Here's the big question. Let me answer this in two minutes. What if you don't feel? What if there's moments where you don't feel like you're saved? Where you say, oh, and, and, and this might happen. You might not feel because you've allowed some sin to continue and you haven't grown out of it yet. Or you might feel because Satan's trying to discourage you. You may feel because you don't fully understand eternal life and the doctrine. Or you may have listened to somebody, you know, some preacher, some disciple maker that has made statements like, you better remember, you have to know all these doctrines before you got saved. And they've added to repentance. And so some people don't feel saved. Do, Do you remember this guy, character, some of you in the old reruns? Do you remember who he is? 
Joe Fry, what was his one line that the character is famous for? Just the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Here are the facts. The facts, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And how do we know this? Okay. You and I can have assurance, which is a good thing. Okay. But assurance a lot of times is based upon how we feel, what we're thinking, what we know. Let's take it a little bit further than just assurance. And by the way, assurance better be based upon scripture. Let's talk about security. It's not based upon how I feel. My security, my knowing that I'm on my way to heaven is not based on what I do or what I think, but upon Jesus Christ. And the Spirit bears witness that I am secure. How does he do that? What does the Spirit use to speak with us? Feelings? Facts. Where do you find the facts? The Word of God. It's the Word of God. The facts are these. The facts are all of these things we've just talked about based on Bible. The facts are very clear, very simple, that when somebody repents of their sin genuinely and calls upon Christ as their Savior, this happens to them. They are changed. They are transformed. The Spirit of God is living with them. It's a one-time act. They don't have to keep on doing this. Jesus Christ assists. He doesn't accuse. God never turns. You're, still, you're, not, you're, you're corrected. You're chastened, but you're not condemned. Those are all the facts. The facts are God is going to keep on working with you to change you to become everything he wants you to be. He is going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The facts far outweigh the feelings. We need to go by facts. You're dealing with somebody who's a baby Christian. You better really take time and help them to realize it's not about feelings. It's about facts. The remainder of the book. Oh, by the way, this, this is a critical verse. Just add this to it. Okay. What does this verse tell you about God? He cannot lie. He cannot lie. He, what he says in his words God cannot lie. This is no trickery that once we get eternal life, we have it. Now, in the rest of your book, it's talking about you know, those who say you can lose your salvation, how it diminishes uh, sin and Christ and his work. But remember, here's the bottom line. Our salvation, our making sure that we're on our way to heaven, is dependent upon God's character, not yours. Think that through. You and I are on our way to heaven, not because of our character or conduct, but because of God's conduct and character. Thank God that's the way it works. That it's him that keeps us saved. I know there's been a whole lot of stuff. I've just dumped a whole lot upon you. Take it, use it, write it in your Bible. If I argue, I put some of this in the flyleaf of the Bible. If we have somebody come forward and we ask you, hey, go and talk with them, you have these facts that you can share with them that are critical to help them to understand once saved, always saved.